Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello everyone, Sakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Oh my God, has it been an interesting week. Uh, okay, so first off, we just got back from the event that we were doing with the War of the Barons, getting everything set up, which is this LARPing event that we were doing in South Carolina at the end of this February from the 23rd to the 24th. And if you are still interested in being one of my knights or one of my men at arms, there are still some positions that are available for you to sign up in. So if you want to bash people with me, uh, that, wait, that sounds really wrong. I don't wrong. think you can bash people. It's foam. Well, or LARPing. You can't, but there's a fiberglass core, which means that it actually is still fun to hit people. It's not like it's pool noodles or anything like that. I, what I'm saying is you all should definitely join me in this event because it's going to be, be super a bunch fun. of fun. I'm going to be a nun because I don't want to get hit in the face with a um, sword. But yeah. Fair point. We actually had gotten back from that event or rather from the setup for the event that we were going out to only to find that our kitchen, which had um, unfortunately had a pipe burst in it here a couple weeks ago, was completely warped and we now had to have the entire thing gutted. So that was fun. Yeah, like it's completely ripped out. We have no kitchen. Um, I'm I'm worried because it's been a week since they ripped it apart and we're just waiting, I guess. Whatever, it's totally cool. And today is Steve's birthday. So we went to a cabin because, you know, our entire house, the entire downstairs is a disaster. And last night, you know, the night of his birthday, Joya got a stomach bug and spent all night throwing up. So it's been real. An interesting week, to say the least. And, you know, all this got me thinking, you know, my initial plan from when I posted the whole thing on Patreon about the uh, our house flooding, people were like, oh, you should do an entire history of plumbing. And I thought that is a great idea. And so I thought that that's what I was going to do. And then I started doing research and all this bearing stuff with plumbing and sewage and everything else. And I, I came across something that I found to be significantly more interesting for an episode. Because I honestly think if I was going to do a whole thing on plumbing as much as some people would really like it, that would require a lot more varying sources across all different things with history. Whereas the thing that I wanted to talk about now is what happens when you don't have proper plumbing. The thing that happens when you don't properly manage your sewage. Or you're drinking water that Disease. for whatever reason ends up getting mixed with sewage. Death. That, that's right. Destruction. That's right. Well, in this case, uh, what it ended up destroying is large swath of the poor of British society. Because what we are talking about today is the British and cholera epidemics, which became a very, very common thing in the 1800s. Now, for those of you who are curious as to what it is that I am talking about, I'm sure that many of us are aware that Great Britain was the home of the Industrial Revolution. 
This is something that over the course of the 1700s, Great Britain was transforming into an industrialized nation, one of the most powerful states to exist over the course of the entire earth. And by the 1800s, London was the largest city in the world. As a result, it resulted in many different social changes that were being brought about across all of society through this industrialization. The poor were becoming, well, in some cases better off, in other cases poorer as they were trapped into the cities, and mass migration from the countryside meant that more and more people were being crammed into smaller and smaller areas inside of towns. And do you know what happens when a whole bunch of people are crammed together in very tight spaces that are typically not very clean? Disease. Disease. Exactly. But see, London was a city that was overwhelmed, not just by the number of people, but the things that people have a tendency to produce. Waste. And its population just kept on continuously growing. A population who the majority of which would live in squalor in overcrowded slums. Human waste would pile up in courtyards and overflow from basement cesspits into the gutters and waterways. And just in general, London stank. Oh my God, did London really stink. And in such conditions, diseases, I mean, that's something that's a guarantee. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. Outbreaks of diseases such as typhoid and scarlet fever were common. But in the 1800s, the arrival of cholera was going to lead to investigations into sanitation as well as the causes of the disease, and from that was actually going to transform how we approach modern sewage and hygiene. So, okay, in order to talk about this, we're going to be going back into a little bit of the history of cholera as well as sanitation reform, which was a thing at this time. They weren't all completely stupid. I know that a lot of us, when we're talking about things in the past, you know, we think of things like leeching and all the other ideas for medicine and how people thought about society and hygiene, that it wasn't the best. But weirdly enough, in this time of scientific developments, people did have ideas that, at least to their minds, had some basis of science, right? Like European doctors were not familiar with the symptoms and prognosis for cholera. When this first started to spread, they had no real idea about how something like that spreads. There really was no cure. The rapid onset of symptoms such as diarrhea, of nausea, of vomiting, all this results in severe dehydration from fluid loss. It results in lethargy, erratic heartbeat, sunken eyes, as well as dry and shriveled skin with a characteristic bluish tint. Like, cholera is something that, for all intents and purposes, if you wanted to create a zombie film and set it in the 1800s, you could probably say that it's a mutant variant of cholera because that is pretty much what ends up happening with people. And so this combination of very scary and very deadly like symptoms, as well as fear of the unknown, this is something that seized the public's imagination. And cholera was something that was terrifying to people, not just because it was a deadly disease, but because it was seen as something that wasn't British. It was foreign. So they were cool with British diseases. Well, it was new, much in the same way as people would associate smallpox with like, you know, bringing to the new world to wipe out the natives. And the bubonic plague came from Asia. Cholera was also the same kind of thing. Like cholera was at the time known as Asiatic cholera because it came from Asia. That was the idea behind it. Like that, that's what it was. And so 
the idea of cholera invading the nation was a very real one. So as an example of this, the, the first appearance of cholera in 1831 was very quickly followed by another epidemic in 1837 and 1838. And this was then followed by epidemics of influenza and typhoid fever. We're talking about rapid onset diseases again and again and again, and it's not pretty for anyone. And what this did was it prompted the government to ask a lawyer and leading social reformer by the name of Edwin Chadwick to go and carry out an inquiry into sanitation and figure out, okay, um, how can we not have this disease spread literally everywhere? So in his publication, The Sanitary Conditions of the Laboring Population in 1842, which can you just imagine from that sentence, it's possibly one of the most British things that you could possibly say. Oh, yes, the sanitary conditions of the laboring population. Jowl shaking. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a book that was published in 1842, or not a book, but a, uh, a work that was published. And Chadwick used quantitative methods to show that, interestingly enough, and I know this sounds crazy to a lot of us nowadays, there was a direct link between living in poor conditions, disease, and life expectancy. I could believe people having to be told that because they also had to be told to wash their hands and they were doctors. Yes, this is true. And everyone made poor Semmelweis look like he was... Do you want to tell that little story here real quick for this so people understand the context of what we're talking about for the most basic of basic things that children are taught for washing their hands? So there was a really high mortality rate amongst new mothers in... I forgot which... I'm pretty sure it was like Germany, somewhere in Europe. And it was because doctors go, they would dissect cadavers and then they'd go back and they would deliver babies and then the moms would get sepsis. And then this guy, Semmelweis, was like, hey guys, um, maybe we wash our hands because I think that might be linked. And everyone was like, how dare you? We're doctors. We don't, we don't need to wash our hands. Like we, we, you're making us look bad. We're not going to be killing our patients. Um, and so it was super bad. He got shunned. He died. Um, in a mental institute, I'm pretty sure. And then it turns out, oh yeah, no, like we definitely shouldn't have been cutting open dead people and then delivering babies. Because they were actually killing their patients. So that happened. Yeah, so that's the context of the society that we are talking about here at this point, just so you all really understand this. Oh, and if you guys want to learn more about that and a lot of other medical history, if you're ever in Austria, like Vienna, you should go to the Josephinium it is so cool. Oh, yes. With all the wax models. There's and everything a lot of wax models of the human body in different conditions. There's like this whole one with like every single possible birth condition. Um, it shows like a wax carving, essentially a wax model of like the mom and the baby inside. There's like of all of your organs, the brain. It is so cool. And then there's a lot of other like medical history, medical technology history. And then, you know, the not so great stuff that happened from World War II. Yes, yes, there is a lot of that. No, it really is something that is fascinating. And this is a time period in which medical technology is advancing rapidly, but also simultaneously, there's a, there's, there's a series of roadblocks for what people understand about it, right? So the investigation in which they discovered that, hey, being poor and living in poor conditions has an adverse effect upon your health and life expectancy. Well. That is something that would inspire the Public Health Act of 1848 and the establishment of the General Board of Health. 
of which Chadwick ended up being the first director. So, all right, in 1848, the Times would describe cholera as being the best of all sanitary reformers. This being because everyone was panicking to high hell because of this disease, and they really wanted to fix it. Therefore, they were actually trying to do things to help. And since Chadwick was appointed to be the first, you know, board of health director person, he would become the sanitary commissioner of London, so to speak. And in this course of his investigation, right, or over the course of his investigations into the living conditions of the poor, Chadwick became interested in the problem of sanitation and how it works. And he became convinced, convinced of this crazy, stupid idea that some simple, weird measures such as cleaning and proper drainage and ventilation for clean air, that these were things that would somehow improve the health of working people. And therefore, are you, are you ready for the most British answer possible in this? Or maybe American, depending upon what time period you're, uh, you're expecting this in. <laughs> sure. <clears throat> this needed to be done to improve people's health so that it would therefore make them, quote, less dependent on welfare. Yes. Um... Yes, you, you didn't want to do something where people would potentially be leeching off state resources, so you want to make them healthier before that. Which that I makes have to a say, lot of sense, though, does, because people, even to this day, are like, oh, you know, if we want lower cost of health insurance and all that stuff, we need to get everybody healthier. Yeah, ban so smoking, ban sense. alcohol, ban anything that can hurt people, and then therefore you'll run into a situation where people are healthier and it won't cost so much because no one's bringing it down. Yeah, pretty much. Because the more unhealthy your population is, the more you're going to be dishing out in healthcare costs. And then according to the illness, not just the healthcare costs, but if they can't work, then... Oh, exactly. Yes. Welfare. Yes, this is true. And so what Chadwick supported from this is the rapid removal of human waste, seeing this as being one of the major sources of not germs, rather bad air that cause disease. Because unfortunately, his limited improvements to the extremely chaotic sewage and drainage system. Oh my God, the amount of stuff that we could talk about for Britain and its sewage system and how it worked over time. Oh, yeah, no. From trying to clean all the streets of all the waste and everything that was creating all these problems within society, this led to greater flow of raw sewage into the River Thames, which was, can you guess it? The main source of drinking water for London. And so by further contaminating London's water supply, the risk of cholera drastically increased. They dumped sewage into their drinking water supply? Yes, they did. They didn't see that as a... What did they think? We dumped the poop in and then it dilutes so much it's safe to drink. Was that the thought process? They didn't understand germ theory. It wasn't that. No, but literally, I feel like somewhere in your brain, the fact that you were dumping that poop makes you realize, hey, maybe it shouldn't be near me. Mm-hmm. Then you drink the water. There were, to be fair, many different water companies that existed to be providing drinking water for people. And different companies had different systems from which they would provide. Like there were companies that quadruple filtered their water before it was pumped in. And usually that was for the more well-to-do neighborhoods, naturally, that could afford to pay for that kind of thing. 
And so those water companies, the recipients of it, generally speaking, had a lower disease rating than some of the ones that were in the poor areas that just, uh, <laughs> uh, you, you take what you can get, so to speak. I'm so baffled by that. Yeah. Like those companies couldn't get sued? Nope, not back in the day. Or even if you did, they just, laws were very, very different back in the day. That was not something that necessarily really applied. Did you know, actually, because this is super weird to me, because I'm from Trinidad and obviously everybody catches their rainwater. You know, you have tanks outside. Like, yeah, there's public water, but also you usually have like a well and those who don't have wells, they catch tank water and then you would use that for drinking and whatnot. Yes. Um, in the U.S., there's like rules against catching water. Depending upon where you are. And that a is lot crazy. Of states no, don't. that's wild to me. Like it's water from the sky and we can't just catch it. It's true. And use it and drink it. That's nuts. That's I feel like the U.S. is so controlling for what it's water. It should be easily available, easily accessible. Why? I understand like acid rain and potential like pollution. But if you're out in the middle of nowhere, what what is the reason? Why can't we just catch rainwater? I, I'm trying to remember. Okay. If for anyone who is watching this on YouTube right now, because I'm not looking it up, I'm not putting any of the stuff in here. If someone wants to give a reasoning for why, if they live in a particular state or area where it is illegal to catch your own rain, rainwater or whatnot, if you could say why it is in the comment section, please let me know because that, that's something that actually okay. we are genuinely curious about. Like, what is so, it for Kentucky? Out of curiosity. A, I don't know what it is, but it says out of the lower 48 states in the U.S., only two Colorado and Utah have restrictions in place when it comes to harvesting water, which I guess makes a lot of yes, sense. Yes, they oh, have severe okay. water issues. So this is so funny because I am technically a water resource management major, but it's something about. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, Rocket Money. For those of you who don't know what Rocket Money is, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that helps to find and cancel your unwanted subscriptions, to monitor your spending, to help lower your bills, and it does all of this in one place. I am saying this right now, but Rocket Money has been a huge help to my family. It is something that I have personally used for years, and over 5 million users have also been helped and saved an average of $720 a year. With all the different subscription services that I sign up to to get free trials to varying different things for news sites and other organizations that I need, in order to do research for this show, it is very quickly and easily going to get out of hand for me. And there have been multiple occasions where I have accidentally paid for additional subscriptions for things that I end up not needing, and Rocket Money has thus been able to save me and catch this and stop me from overspending. 
In addition to all of that, easily one of the most valuable aspects that my family uses and my wife really drills into me what it is that she needs is the ability to budget our finances, and that is something that Rocket Money has helped us immensely with. So I'm saying this right now. Stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash everything. That is rocketmoney.com slash everything. Apparently, the law in Colorado dates back over 120 years. The law implies that the rainwater that falls on your property could flow downstream into someone else's water supply, which would mean that you're taking it from them if you collect it on your own property, which goes right back to water rights and water rights, like usage rights, which is huge in like Colorado and places like it's oh my gosh, that makes a lot of sense. Particularly in places that are naturally speaking more dry in areas. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense, actually. So, okay, the whole thing, though, for water and their ideas behind disease and what was going on there, this is all a story of miasma versus what would be uh, a contaminant, so to speak, a contagion, basically, that is something that is going to affect things. Is it bad air or is it actually something that is contaminating or affecting something? See, cholera was a new and exotic disease from Asia, and it brought into focus something that was very distinct between these two different ideological thoughts behind medicine. I don't really know how else it is that I can phrase it. That's just the best way that one really can, because it was political for many people. So miasma theory, the way that it essentially worked, is that diseases are caused by the presence in the air of a miasma. This being a type of poisonous vapor, so to speak, in which there are suspended particles of decaying matter that is characterized by a foul smell. So when you go to a place, like when a corpse is literally rotting, well, the foul air, the thing that you smell, that is the thing that can cause disease because it is something that is actually poisonous. The theory is something that goes back hundreds of years into the Middle, like into the Middle Ages, But even the ideas before that, like the ideas of this go back even back to like ancient Greece, but was really codified in proper medicine, so to speak, I guess you could say, in the Middle Ages going into the Renaissance. The advocates of the contagion theory, right, they believe that it's not the air itself. It is an infectious agent that spreads from person to person, which would explain why those who cared for sick people often got sick themselves, even though they weren't in an area where there was, say, rotting corpses or sewage or other things. It's one of those that neither theory could really seem to account for the little details with the other for what would be the truth, you know, because they, they didn't have knowledge of germs. They didn't know exactly what caused it. They just could just kind of see something was happening and they were guessing at what it possibly was. So. Measures to prevent and control the spread of infectious disease were based on these two theories, with the most popular one being miasma. It's what has been going back for many more hundreds of years. Sanitation and good hygiene practices, such as washing walls and floors, removing foul-smelling sources of miasma, you know, fecal matter, uh, dead bodies, these kinds of things, the decaying waste and sewage, all of those were not done because of germs. They were anti-miasma efforts. They wanted to remove the things that smelled bad because by removing the things that smelled bad, that would stop the disease. Ironically enough, 
by removing sewage from your immediate area, <laughs> yes, it's going to stop it from, you know, smelling so bad, but also any of the bacteria or other things that could be present are also simultaneously removed. So to them, the science checked out, like the math mathed, it added <laughs> up, it made sense, right? Contagionist efforts, though, these like quarantine, restrictions of movement, all the other things like preventing direct contact with potentially infected people, all that stuff was something that still kind of worked, but they didn't know what caused it or what could prevent it. And things that people think were containment efforts were in fact miasma efforts. So, okay, this is going to sound really, really dumb, but you have to understand this for why this is so interesting and unique. Remember how in the Black Death, there were plague doctors, right? Yeah. Like the people with the giant masks and whatnot. Yeah. So, so okay, okay. That, Which was 13th century? Yeah, well, uh, 14th. 14th century. Yes, 14th. Well, I, actually, technically, I think it's the end of the 13th going into the 14th yeah, century. Yeah, so it's yes. late 13th, so if you do anything early. I, I only know that because in War of the Barons, yes. um, my friend wanted to be a plague doctor. Yes. And it's the wrong time period, which is, that makes sense, I guess. Yes. So those masks that they wore were filled with sweet smelling perfumes and other kinds of things. And they didn't wear the masks to stop the spread of germs. They, they wore the masks to, to purify the air. Yeah. Yeah. With good smells. But it helped because, you know, it actually it was blocking anything from really coming through because it was so if, long. Too. If it was properly sealed. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's really ironic how they, they were did, so close. They did the math wrong, but they came to the same answer. Yeah. It's like throwing a dart, you know, and you get a bullseye, but on the other board. Exactly. <laughs> Literally, that, that, that is what it is. Yes. So ironically, the efforts that they had of like banning strangers from entering towns and all these other things that could bring disease, it was because they thought that the miasma could potentially be clinging to them and enter into their town as well. Not germs, but just, again, the spread of miasma. So that, plus the plague doctors, plus everything else, meant that they were following germ theory, even while simultaneously thinking that it was actually miasma. So, in practice, both types of measurements were used during the Black Death and other things. And this is actually something that did help. At the end of the 1800s, germ theory was able to account for both types of, you know, infection, whether it was through primary contaminants in the air and water and other things, person-to-person -person contact, all this kind of stuff where, you know, someone wasn't touching sewage, but they were in contact with a person that was sick, whereas miasma theory couldn't really do this. But it couldn't answer why this was happening. And one of the most confusing things and where people would disregard germ theory was, think about this, Gabby, what happens in our household where Joy gets sick? And then one of us gets sick, either you or me, and then the other person doesn't. Because not everybody got sick. Exactly. So they would go, oh, well, it's not that. Exactly. Because there's no way because four other people were around the sick person and they didn't get I it. I do that too, though, because when you get sick and she gets sick, I'm like, oh, well, you know, it must have been a, an allergy. <laughs> Literally. So, well, they wouldn't have said allergy at the time because they wouldn't have understood it, but they would not think that germ theory was real. And that was one of the big problems back in the day. So it was really confusing. So in the 1800s, in England, miasma theory seemed to be the thing that made the most sense to sanitary reformers. That's what it is that you had to follow. Rapid industrialization and urbanization created a lot of people that were really poor, really dirty, 
And from that, these poor and dirty people would live in poor and dirty neighborhoods. And these poor and dirty neighborhoods tended to be the focal points for disease and epidemics. So if they did some very simple things, improving the housing, improving sanitation, general cleanliness of these existing areas, then the levels of disease would fall. And guess what? What? That did happen. They actually cleaned up these areas and the diseases that were commonly occurring in these spots. Yes, there would be the occasional epidemic, but in reality, for the most part, it did actually help. This seemed to further prove that miasma theory was correct. But okay, enough of that, talking about the theory and what it was that was going on at the time. How does all of this then factor into cholera? So there were several epidemics of cholera, but in 1848, 49, there was a second outbreak, a major outbreak of cholera, and this was followed by a further outbreak in 1853 to 1854. And towards the end of that second outbreak that we're talking about, there was an individual by the name of John Snow, who was a physician that was based out of London. He went and published a paper called On the Mode of Communication of Cholera in 1849, in which he proposed the very crazy and stupid idea. The cholera was not transmitted by bad air, but rather water, which didn't make sense for miasma. But it wasn't miasma theory that he was utilizing. It was the early stages of germ theory. But when he did this, no one really paid attention to the paper. It wasn't seen as something that was actually applicable. That being until a few years later, 1854 rolled around and it got quite nasty. Remember, 1853 is when the cholera epidemic broke out, and this is something that would continue all the way in through the next year. And on the 31st of August, 1854, after several other outbreaks had occurred elsewhere in the city, a major outbreak of cholera occurred in Soho. Now, Snow would later call it, quote, the most terrible outbreak of cholera which ever occurred in this kingdom, but I mean, of course, the other epidemics were nastier, but this was incredibly densely concentrated. Over the next three days, 127 people that were on or near Broad Street would die. During the next week, three quarters of the residents of like the entire population in that region fled it. Were they fleeing because they thought it was airborne or? Yes, literally. They Here's, here's the thing. When people even still like, there's two reactions that people typically had to disease in history. One, hide. Two, run. And that, that's the thing. There are strengths and weaknesses to both. Like you could hide away, shut yourself out, shut the rest of the world out. And perhaps from that, you will protect yourself from infection. Or two, it could also simultaneously lock you in there with all the things that cause the disease and it's going to spread to you anyway. Wasn't that like an Edgar Allan Poe story about the plague? With uh, the king who locked themselves in I the palace? I am trying to remember. I, I swear I think that you are right, but for the life of me, I cannot remember. High school remember. was forever ago. I'm vaguely remembering. Oh, that's going to bother me. I t okay, I can't remember, but I think that you are right. Anyone right now in the comment section on YouTube is going to let us know how stupid I am right now for not being able to remember this. I'll let you know how stupid you are anytime. Just ask. Thanks, Gabby. I anytime. appreciate it. Anyway, a bunch of people ran away, you know, which was the second type of thing that you could potentially do to stop yourself from catching a disease. The problem was, is that if you have something like, you know, bubonic plague or other stuff, when that happens, you, you could be bringing it. it exactly. You could just be taking the infection elsewhere. So it, uh, it, it varies. A whole bunch of people ran away 
And by mid-September, more than 500 people had died. The mortality rate in the, like, in the city from this was very high. We're talking like 12.8 per thousand inhabitants in some parts of the city, which doesn't seem like a lot, but for a death ratio, that is a pretty good amount of people that are just dying, like a decent rate. And in some areas, it gets much, 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 much worse. By the end of the outbreak, 600-something people in that area had died. Though, of course, in many other places throughout history, there were way worse pandemics, this was highly concentrated. And you have to remember, so many people had already fled. Many of the victims here were actually taken to the Middlesex Hospital, where their treatment was overseen by Florence Nightingale. That's an individual that I actually should go and do a, uh, a podcast episode on, because she is one of the key reasons why we think of you know, famous nurses in history. She is the archetype of that, you could say. So she joined in with that hospital in September in order to actually be able to help people that were suffering. Fun little fact. So where does Jon Snow come in then? And I John Snow. Yes. Yes. His, okay. So okay. I know you're thinking, but his name very is beginning. Okay? His name is John Snow. And then we yes. can go to the very end where he has the dragon. You know what I'm saying? At the Battle of Winterfell. Uh huh. Actually, does he win that or does he die? Hmm. I think he lives. You know, it would have been way more ironic if we were talking about someone either preserving something in ice like cryogenics or from the other side, if he was talking about purifying utensils through fire, that would have been I way do more know iconic. that Jon Snow knew nothing. So this is probably going to make this story interesting. Mm. You know See, nothing, Jon Snow. Funny thing is, that's literally what, okay, we're going to, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> that's pretty much what everyone thought about him. In oh, the first place. They thought he was a crackpot. He was. Because of germ theory. Well, like, that wasn't, that wasn't the science of the day. It's clearly the miasma from the earth. It's just filthy. It's not your filthy water, Jon Snow. You know so nothing, Jon Snow. Good at that. Because I used to practice doing things with, like, Richard Nixon and the jowls. Like, Richard <laughs> Nixon's back, baby. It looks like a, what is the dog? You know, is that Great Dane? The dog with the giant, With, a, with like, the flaps. Yeah. Yeah. Is that Great Dane? Like, a Great Dane or, or bulldogs also have it. It depends. Eh, poor bulldogs. French bulldogs. Justice for the little bulldogs. <laughs> so that was basically people said pretty much like Game of Thrones, you know, nothing, Jon Snow, and thought that he was crazy. But by talking to local residents who had actually stuck around, along with a reverend by the name of Henry Whitehead, Snow would, during this time, identify the source of the outbreak. It wasn't anything from like, you know, people going directly to the River Thames and just drinking out of it or anything like that. It was a public water pump on Broad Street, which is now known as Broadwick Street, this being at Cambridge Street. And although Snow went and examined this water and actually looked at it to try and identify if there was something in it, his chemical and microscope examinations of the sample of water didn't find anything. But he knew, he knew that from the patterns of illness and death among the residents in Soho, the only thing that they all had in common was this specific pump. So what he did is he went to the authorities at the St. James Parish and he asked them to please disable the well pump by removing its handle. And they did. In Snow's own words, he would say, quote, on proceeding to the spot, I found that nearly all the deaths had taken place within a short distance of the Broad Street pump. There were only 10 deaths in houses that were situated decidedly nearer to the another street pump, 
and in five of these cases, the families of the deceased persons informed me that they always sent the pump or they were always sent to the pump in Broad Street as they preferred the water of that pump, which was near. In three other cases, the deceased were children who went to school near the pump in Broad Street. With regard to the deaths occurring in the locality belonging to the pump, there were 61 instances in which I was informed that the deceased persons used the drink or used to drink the pump water from Broad Street, either constantly or occasionally. The result of the inquiry then was that there had been no particular outbreak or prevalence of cholera in this part of London, except among the persons who were in the habit of drinking the water of the above-mentioned pump well. I had an interview with the Board of Guardians of St. James Parish on the evening of Thursday, the 7th of September, and represented the above circumstances to them. In consequence of what I said, the handle of the pump was removed the following day. The interesting thing about this is that many people, when they talk about this kind of event in history, they think, oh my God, he did it. He stopped the outbreak. And this actually is not true, at least from what we think about it. Yeah, it's popularly said that this is something that totally saved everyone, but in reality, the epidemic at this point seemed to have already been in decline. Like, remember, as we said, that a whole bunch of people had already fled. And if 75% of the population had already fled the area, there really wasn't much spreading to do in the first place. Even Snow would specifically state, quote, there is no doubt that the mortality was much diminished, as I said before, by the flight of the population which commenced soon after the outbreak. But the attacks had so far diminished before the use of water was stopped that it is impossible to decide whether the well still contained the cholera poison in an active state or whether, from some cause, the water had become free from it. So what he had done here and what he would do afterwards, because remember, he just talked to a bunch of people in order to determine that this well was the cause, is that he started to plot it out. You know those scenes, Gabby, in like like a detective not detective, well, I guess a detective show, some kind of crime scene, some kind of crime show where they use all those colored tacks and things and they slap it up on a wall where there's a map and things that they're trying to identify and they're connecting it with strings and everything. It's basically a concept map. We use them in school all the time, but usually for arguments, like water rights agreements, not for solving a murder mystery. But did it work? It did. It did. So he used this dot map to illustrate how cases of cholera occurred specifically around this pump. And his efforts to connect the incidents of cholera with their geographic sources, this was something that would later become known as a Voronoi diagram. He mapped the locations of individual water pumps and generated cells, which represented all the points on this map that were closest to the pump. And the section of the map that represented areas of the city with the closest available source of water, where the highest rate of disease was occurring, that was in the Broad Street pump, lo- pump, like pump location. Because think about it like this. It, it's like you have, wh- what it would do is that you have the map. You have the, the location of one color tack that represents a pump. And then around that, you would have the prevalence of cases. And only within the circle, only within the cell that was around Broad Street was it so incredibly dense and high. And it all surrounded that pump. Snow also performed a statistical comparison between the Southwark and Vauxhall Waterworks Company, as well as a waterworks at Seething Wells that was owned by the Lambeth Waterworks Company. The issue that would occur during this as he was trying to identify the source of where the water was coming from, from this pump, 
is that some of these companies were getting water from the River Thames further upstream than others. So what would end up happening is that some companies that delivered water to some areas got pure forms of water, while others were lowered down in the stream so that as waste and other stuff from more humans were coming into it, the further down the river Thames you were, um, you can kind of get the idea of what I'm talking about here for what would happen. What were their water filtration practices? Okay, so some of them would filter it once. Some of them would filter it two or when three times. When we say filter, though, what our filter and their filter, because we don't just filter water, we treat water. Yes. So what were their processes? I t- listen, going into the level, each company had different methods. Some of them used chemicals. Well, you said that before. To- so what chemicals would they, that's what I got to know. What was the standard water filtration procedure for this time frame? Guess what? What? There was no standard. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. You're going to ask me that question here for like, what was standard? And you're talking about something in the 1800s of which there was no standard practice of what they would decidedly do. Like that's something that honestly, I could, I think that I should go into here and see if there was something more that I could turn into a short when talking about this. But in general, each company had their own kind of different method. Some would use simple things for just like filtration with gravel and charcoal and other stuff like that. Others would use chemicals It entirely depended upon, you know, how much work they wanted to put into it and how many steps they would do it. Apparently, they started slow sand filtration in the 1800s, but they was just starting. Yeah, see? So that's what I'm talking about, the gravel and sand and stuff. Like, that was arguably the most basic thing that you could do. And then others would treat it in different ways. It's just, oh, God, it's, it's, it's not good. They really had a struggle with the waterborne illnesses until they introduced chlorine. Yep. In the early 1900s. Yep. 
Yep. Because in 1908, chlorine was used for the first time as a primary disinfectant of drinking water in Jersey City, New Jersey. That is a fascinating thing. Actually, at this time, we're talking about all this stuff in London because London is the biggest point. New York in the mid-1800s here at this time in history is also experiencing cholera outbreaks. Uh, around that this time, common. around the early 1900s, ozone was um, beginning to be used in Europe. Ozone? But it wasn't Wait, I'm not familiar with that That's what one. I said. Other disinfectants such as ozone. And then huh. federal regulation of drinking water quality, it began in 1914 when the U.S. Public Health Service set standards for the bacteriological quality of drinking water. But before that, they were just, yeah. They were there literally was no standard. It. They were like, um, it looks good enough. Because in the 1700s, filtration was established as an effective means of removing particles, but they couldn't, they, they didn't know how to measure it. They yeah. were just like, uh, They also enough. couldn't remove bacteria because they didn't understand it at all. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't until Jon Snow was like, oop, germs, that they were like, mm, maybe we pour some poison. In. I'm, <laughs> I'm joking. For some of them, would. But he <laughs> was able to, from this, prove that the people that got their water from certain companies further upstream actually had mortality rates that were 14 times lower yeah, than what was supplied by the others. They still had deaths, though. Mm -hmm. they, oh, they still did. Because the thing is, it's not always going to be 100%. There's still a chance of something happening and you can't really account for it, literally everything. And that's but, why we don't drink tap water, Steve. <clears throat> oh my God. Yes, we do. Okay, we do. We're not the people that don't I drink tap like water. I just feel like it tastes gross. Some of them do. Okay, especially down in Florida when we would go down oh, there. Oh gosh, Florida after a hurricane is a disaster <laughs> for tap water, you guys. For anyone that has not been, Florida is a... Uh, Pretty swampy. It tastes and, pretty bad. And, it, and when you, um, especially after a storm, certain parts of Florida, it just straight up tastes like sulfur. It is, it is rotten eggs for some of it for tap water. It is not very pleasant at times. Either way, the funny detail about all of this is that there was one very significant anomaly. Something that's going to kind of shock us, you know, something that be truly surprising. And that is that none of the workers in the nearby Broad Street Brewery ended up contracting cholera. None of them. Everyone else was dying, but not these people. Because guess what? They were given a daily allowance of beer. They did not consume water from the nearby well because they were drinking beer. And during the brewing process, the like unfermented beer is boiled in part so that hops can be added. And this step, because it is partially boiled, ends up killing the cholera bacteria in the water that they would use to brew it with making the beer safe to drink. Hmm. Which is interesting because, you know, that whole thing in history when people talk about stuff where you'd boil water, like literally one of the ways that people would clean water is by, you know, boiling it. That's how you'd make it potable, safe to drink. And they did that through brewing, which ironically throughout history is one of the key reasons that people would say in the medieval age why it was safer for people to drink alcohol than it was to drink water. And so, I like to keep that going in modern day because oh I personally think the health benefit. <laughs> oh my God. Well, <laughs> speaking of health benefits, then you're probably going to be a little bit grossed out by the next part. As if I wasn't grossed out by the whole part. So remember how we were talking about how all this disease was being spread about through the River Thames and all that was going on. Um, well, what they later found for the origin of the disease and how this seemed to happen in the first place is that it was discovered later that the public well here had been dug three feet from an old cesspit. 
I know that because I did this story early on. Remember I used to do a Science Sunday segment on my TikTok page? Oh, yes, for the shorts. Before people were horrible. Um, yeah, I... I covered that like two uh, years ago. <laughs> right, you did for this year. Well, for anyone who is unfamiliar with this then, yeah, um, the, the problem with uh, digging a pit and throwing toxic things into it or other fecal matter and things is it doesn't, it doesn't just disappear, right? That stuff migrates underground, so to speak. It le- yeah, there's the word, it leaches. So what it seems to be is that wastewater from washing uh, nappies, like the British word that it would have here for uh, diapers, diapers. Well, that is something that drained into the cesspit. And from that cesspit, since it was so close, it leached into the nearby water. That's not good. Its opening was under a nearby house that had been rebuilt further away after a fire and a street widening. And at the time, there were cesspits under most homes, so most families just tried to have their raw sewage collected and dumped into the Thames in order to stop their cesspit from filling faster than the sewage could decompose into the soil. Or in this case, leach out to other stuff, which it seems to what have been happening here. Either way, after the cholera epidemic had subsided, the government officials replaced the Broad Street pump handle. They just put it back because they didn't see it as being necessary anymore. The weird and dumb part about this, and I'm saying that not in an ironic or, you know, funny way, is that they really only removed it because of the urgent threat to the population at the time. After all of this, they didn't see Jon Snow's theory as being validated. The whole, you know nothing, Jon Snow, is actually true here in their minds. They did not believe his theory. To accept his proposal would mean that they had to accept that the fecal matter and all the other things that were actually causing this disease, like germ theory, that that was real. And it just discredited their entire sanitation base and efforts that they had been working on for literally years. Everything that made them what they were. So do you remember when we were at the Josephinium? Yes. Because they didn't know what was causing cholera. There was this, um, and they thought it was airborne. There was this device where when you got a letter, you had to run it through this device that was supposed to, quote unquote, clean it of the cholera. Mm -hmm. Um, They had all sorts of fun little wacky inventions up until they realized, um, yeah, no, maybe like poop water isn't the best choice of um, drink. Maybe poop water is not. You know what? You, You make a compelling argument, Gabby, but can you sustain that theory? Yeah. So would you lick your toilet? Yes. Okay, well, first of all, you need to go get help. <laughs> um, and for everybody who said no, well, there's your answer. <laughs> no, I, no I, 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 I totally get it. it it's, <laughs> I don't even know where I'm going with this here. I just answered it immediately. Just no, you me. have to go lick your toilet. No, I do not. No, Please, I do not. Go I absolutely quick. do not. Uh-uh. You just say yes. No, 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 no. Everybody, no, no. if you think he should have to live up to his words. No, I, I'll catch cholera and die. I'll do that on my own terms immediately. I don't care. <laughs> the, one of the real sad parts about all this is, of course, in the end, Jon Snow is discredited and he doesn't actually get to see himself be proven right because he dies very shortly after that. June 1858. This being during an event that, at its height, would become known as the Great Stink. 
which for anyone who has seen any of the shorts or anything that we have done on this before, I'm going to give you a little bit of a rundown of this, or I guess the longer version of it versus my short 30 to 60 second bit. Basically, in the summer of 1858, the city of London came to a, san- like to a complete standstill. The government could not function. People did not want to leave their houses, and they demanded action from the government to actually do something. And if you're wondering what caused the entire city of London to be brought to its knees, it wasn't cholera. It wasn't bubonic plague. It wasn't scarlet fever. It wasn't anything like any kind of major disease. No, it was the fact that the River Thames stank to high hell. We're talking about one of the worst stenches ever recorded by humans in history. See, for centuries, when we're going back in and talking about this, England's most famous river, the Thames, was arguably one of the most important rivers for England overall. For London, they used it for literally everything. But it was brackish. So they used it for industry and all of that stuff. But they also like their drinking water and stuff had to have come from tributaries because it was tidal. Yes. So the streams, these streams that ran in, they could have just kept those a little bit cleaner. You know, don't you forget how big London was at the time for everything that went around. Like they were taking it from all kinds of different tributaries, different everything, but all that well, stuff was still being contaminated. Had, like, the really interesting uh, story of their plumbing system where they would bring <laughs> water from their streams, like yes. from far out streams into the city because um, the water in the river itself was just brackish. Yes. And impossible to use for a lot of stuff. This is correct. So the Thames was essentially London's dumping ground for literally every kind of waste you could imagine, whether that was from a human, an animal, industrial waste, whatever. It is, it was incredibly bad. As the population of London had grown, yes, this is is also true. So as the population of London had grown over time from a tiny little Roman settlement into a massive metropolitan city, the amount of waste that it produced naturally went up. And remember, by the time that we were talking about here, London is the most populated city in the world. By the 1600s, which it's not the largest at that point, but we're getting there, many people began to recognize that the pollution of the city's most vital water source was becoming a little bit of a problem. But with no real idea, no comprehensive set of rules for how any of this functions, no idea of how to fix the issue, no action is taken. They don't do anything. The people just continue to use the Thames as both a water source and also a rubbish bin. Like you ever heard the like the hand, like don't bite the hand that feeds you. Don't shit where you eat, etc. Yeah. Yeah, no, they did all that. They did all of that. Absolutely. And so by the arrival of the 19th century, the problem had been left to stew for too long. Bad choice of words in this. Enough waste and pollution had accumulated in the Thames to make it the most contaminated and unhygienic river in the entire world. It is bad. So they write the great stink. It was. Of London. The great stink. Now, the situation in the Thames was noticeable before this time period. Like everyone knew that the Thames was pretty bad. But it was the summer of 1858 that finally got the attention of the politicians. Didn't they do that in like, by the time they got it approved, it was like 18 days, was it not? Literally, like one of the fastest passings of law ever in the the city. Immediately, it's gross. Exactly. So 
that particular summer, it was a pretty hot one. There was a (laughs) massive heat wave. And as a result of that, all of the sewage in the Thames began to ferment in the scorching sun. And centuries, we're not talking about just over the past couple of years. Remember, all of this crap, and I say that in the most literal sense, was settling to the bottom of the river, right? And so centuries of this was then exposed and began to cook in the summer heat. The result was a smell that is arguably like, I don't know what it is now, but to the people of the day, the contemporary records, the most offensive, disgusting, foul, and evil thing that could be imagined. And there were so many different accounts of people that were just talking about this. There were some stories of people saying that men were struck down with the stench as they walked. And fatal diseases sprang up left and right on the, on the banks of the river. Like you could just walk near the river and be struck dead, basically, by the disease that would be spreading up from it. Now, luckily enough for the denizens of London, it wasn't just the average person. It wasn't just the people, the poor, the average suffering ne'er-do-well. No, 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 no. This time it was going to affect the people that really mattered in society. The politicians. The politicians. <laughs> exactly. And of course, you know, for anyone who is listening to me right now, do not think that I am saying that seriously. We all know how things go in here, the politi- like when it comes to politics. Generally speaking, unless a stupidly large number of the average people get affected, usually the elite of society are content with just letting people suffer so long as they themselves do not also have to actually suffer. But the intense heat had driven the legislators of Britain from the buildings that overlooked the river. Their offices, all the things that they would have seen, a few members, apparently bent upon investigating the matter to its depth, went into the library to try and see what it is they could figure out, but they were then forced to retreat because it stank even in there, no matter how far they actually went away from it. And the men were recorded as fleeing from it with handkerchiefs being held to their nose. Members of Parliament did try at first to do what Parliament does best. Ignore it. They tried to not do anything. They wanted to continue their sessions without actually agreeing to any kind of drastic plans or reform because they knew that if they tried to fix anything, that A, they didn't know what they would be doing in the first place, so it was kind of hard to figure out. And, oh, it's just, it's too hard. I don't want to... I don't want to figure that out. I don't want to address a problem. I want to do simple things like figuring out where I'm supposed to go to brunch today. That was the real job of a politician. But no, no, no. They didn't want to figure that out. But they would end up being forced to because the problem, the stink, would grow so incredibly terrible that they were forced to do the worst thing that a politician could possibly do. Actually try to fix an issue and spend money on it. That was not something that they wanted to do at all, but they had to. Now, the first attempt to quench the stench involved dousing the curtains of Parliament with a mixture of chloride and lime. Like, they weren't going to actually try and address the river itself at first. No, 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 no. Instead, they were going to try to stop the smell by insulating the building themselves that they were working in and making sure that it didn't sneak like stink. But that didn't work. No. No, 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 no. When that didn't work, 
they tried to possibly move the entire government from the Westminster area, despite the fact that the newly constructed building that they were operating in was, as I said, newly constructed. It was recently acquired. And so that idea of just completely abandoning the area was dropped and days would pass without the formation of any kind of solid resolution. Eventually, the stink became so bad. It just grew so strong that even the most ardent members of parliament, the ones who would absolutely not spend a penny to do anything. Well, okay. Yeah, no, they, um, they eventually were forced to actually do something as some of these could even be seen, quote, fleeing from the chamber, handkerchief to the nose, complaining loudly about the Stygian pool that the Thames had become with like the Stygian pool, like a literal pool of death. Cause that's, that's what that is a reference to. One of the most vocal and well-known supporters of the Thames reform was this English chemist and physicist by the name of Michael Faraday. And he staunchly supported a complete reformation of the river to, you know, stop it from being toxic. So much so that after a boat ride along its surface, he just couldn't take it anymore. He composed and sent a letter to the editor of the Times newspaper, and the letter was entitled, this is the funny thing, Observations on the Filth of the Thames. And it would become a massive rallying point for the public for an overall restoration of the Thames. He wrote a very blunt dissection of the situation regarding the polluted river as he described how he tossed over pieces of paper into the water, which almost immediately disappeared. Like they just completely broke apart. It wasn't, you know, like you normally put paper and it's like it's going to float for a little bit. Along, no, 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 no. It was so toxic. The paper almost immediately dissolved. Like it was not good. It just disappeared. The whole of the river was an opaque, pale brown fluid. It was no longer a river. It was a real sewer. And that is how he would address it. Faraday also made it very clear when, um, that when he cautioned that, quote, if we neglect this subject, we cannot expect to do so with impunity, nor ought we to be surprised ere many years over, a hot season gives us sad proof of the folly of our carelessness. That is the quote from him. So yeah, that was pretty ironic because that was absolutely going to happen. Either way, thankfully through a combination of public pressure, as you can imagine, was probably happening, and a whole lot of nasal suffering because everyone, it just it really stank. Parliament would finally choose to act instead of just leaving the issue for another hot season to occur, which is kind of hilarious, you know, that they didn't just kick the can down the road because Lord knows that's how these things usually end. They also began to realize that simply relocating the seat of government wasn't actually going to do anything to alleviate the suffering of the people, you know, that voted them into power in the, per in, like, in the first place. So, either way, disregarding the motives behind the renovation, London's most important river was finally going to get the care that it rightfully deserved. The reformation of the Thames included not only the implementation of a sewage system that was going to be designed by a very famous civil engineer, by the name of Sir Joseph Balzaget, but also the construction of embankments along the sides. And with these reforms, the Great Stink would slowly dissipate, and Londoners were finally able to actually breathe again within their city. Not just for the whole sense of, you know, clean air, but also for the benefits that actually come with having a proper, good, and modern, in this case, sewage system. 
because not only did the Thames gradually evolve over time to be one of the cleanest rivers in the world, but also the implementation of a functioning sewage system where wastewater was not just being dumped willy-nilly into the Thames, that actually helped with the elimination of several waterborne illnesses that had plagued London for centuries, like cholera. Because here's the thing. Balzagat's engineering solution was a system that channeled the waste through miles of street sewers to a series of main intercepting sewers, which would slowly transport it from downstream so that it could be pumped into the tidal Thames, from which then it would be swept out to sea and not be in the immediate area that people were actually getting their drinking water from. I know it sounds like a crazy innovation, like it should be obvious, but <laughs> that was a really big deal for the time. Balzaget insisted on constructing really wide, egg-shaped, brick-walled sewer tunnels rather than simple, narrow bore pipes that had previously been favored by others because, you know, they were cheap and easy to do. By making it this massive thing, it meant that as the population of London grew and the waste amount increased, the sewer system could actually grow with it. And the sewer system was opened in 1865. Guess what happened? What happened? The following year, a cholera outbreak occurs. 1866. Oh, wow. Now, here's the funny thing. Here's the funny thing. The victims of the outbreak were almost entirely in the area of East London. Guess what was unique about East London? What was unique about East London? It was the only area at the time that was not yet connected to the modern sewage, like sewage system. Oh, so they were still dumping. They were still dumping and utilizing everything from before. There were barely any cases that were anywhere else. So these slum dwellers were left with very little option but to drink contaminated water. And that final outbreak both justified the expensive sewer system for the rest of the city and actually proved it. But also, it would prove that cholera was coming from the water, that it was a waterborne transmission. It wasn't until 1866 that William Farr, who was one of Snow's chief opponents who discredited him and did not believe that he was right, realized that Jon Snow's points were valid. He realized that he was right. And after this, insisted that the people who lived at Bromley by Bow should not actually go and drink water that was unboiled. He issued that order in response because he realized he was wrong and that Jon Snow, a guy who he extensively criticized, was actually right. Now, he denied Jon Snow's explanation of how exactly the contaminated water spread cholera, but he did accept that, you know, it had a role to play. He wasn't going to fully admit that he was wrong. And in fact, some of the statistical data that he would end up collecting in order to try and prove his points would end up helping to promote Jon Snow's views. Public health officials would recognize that during this time period, political struggles for varying reformers between the different systems, this was something that plagued the entire health system of London. It entirely depended upon who was in power. New ideas didn't really propagate until a lot of death had actually ended up occurring. But eventually, cholera was pretty much wiped from the city only to be seen again in very isolated cases and never again on the scale of mass epidemics. At least in London. The thing that I'm going to go ahead and end this podcast on is by saying that 
cholera is still something that does affect people all over the world today. You typically see it in areas that are suffering from major disasters, like in the case of earthquakes that completely wreck sewer and water systems. Because if both your water pumps and also your sewer are underground, and underground kind of gets destroyed from an earthquake, go figure, a lot of that ends up getting contaminated and mixed. Unfortunately, things like what happened in Haiti here in recent history in the past couple decades meant that at one point after the great Haitian earthquake, around 47% of cases of cholera that would break out during that time period would end up proving to be fatal. It is something that even to this day can happen. And I don't really know what kind of point I want to leave this on here, but just caution people that these diseases never actually went away. Smallpox, cholera, bubonic plague, all of it still exists and where it I, could happen. Where I'm from, we have leprosy, a leprosy outbreak right now. Yeah. So that's, that's fun. These are all things that are not just part of history. They are a very real reality that can happen. And with that, I guess I'm leaving you on that ominous message. I'm sorry. I don't know what else to do with this here in the end. But my friends, thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye.